Welcome, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have Frank McGuinness here with us today. Frank took the British stage by storm, I think, in the middle of the 1980s, and I think it's true to say that he still takes the British stage by storm. Uh, in 1986, at the Hampstead Theatre, his play, Observe the Sons of Ulster, Marching Towards the Somme, uh, was a revelation. It not only opened a window on a moment of Irish and British history that had been forgotten, it also, and I think almost more importantly, gave emotional life to the Protestants in the north of Ireland. In many ways, I think Frank's um, ability to give life to the other is something that has struck a chord for many, uh, many audience members. My own, uh, perhaps, I think most profound and, and moving memory of going to the theatre in the 80s was in the late 80s when I saw his play Bag Lady performed at the Riverside in Hammersmith. There again, the forgotten, the voiceless, the other, was given an incredibly poignant um, life that I think um, at that time, anyway, of course, the backdrop of, of Britain and particularly Thatcher's Britain, when for many of us, we had never ever seen beggars on the streets. Suddenly, we were seeing them everywhere. And Frank was giving this woman, this bag lady, a voice, a life. In some ways then, war-torn world, displaced peoples, um, the other, perhaps that's not a very long uh, journey from working with Greek tragedy. And uh, after Bag Lady, very soon after Bag Lady, Frank uh, translated the Electra and that played to great acclaim with Kostoi Wanamaka in the lead role at the Donma Warehouse. Following that, his next Greek tragedy was very surprising for many of us, surprising choice at the time, was the Hecuba, again at the Donmar warehouse, this time with Claire Higgins in the role. And that was a real revelation, and I know that Frank's going to talk about that later. More recently, we've seen Ray Fiennes, uh, Oedipus in Frank's translation uh, at the National Theatre, and this summer, another surprising play, uh, The Helen, which I had never seen staged before, I have to confess, and enjoyed immensely at the Globe. What I think is most interesting uh, for me, and, and it will be my first question to you, Frank, is that you're considered, here in Britain anyway, uh, primarily as a playwright. And I think when we think of other Irish translators of, 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 of Greek tragedy, um, we always think of them primarily as poets. And you know, I'm not just thinking Yeats, I'm thinking, of course, contemporary translators like um, Brendan Kennelly, Derek Mann, uh, and of course, Seamus Heaney. Uh, but you're known first and foremost um, as a playwright. Um, do you consider yourself primarily a playwright uh, rather than a poet, or, or perhaps maybe you find that 
a rather false distinction. I, I definitely would consider myself more a playwright than a poet. Um, and the, the, um, the, the names you mentioned there, they're definitely more poets than they are playwrights. Um, but I, I come from this tradition, which I very willingly accept, of, um, of the Abbey playwrights. And when you have um, such extraordinary, powerful, and contradictory um, figures in your background, that is your, you know, your theatrical and literary inheritance, such as Singh especially, and also with Casey, and to a much lesser extent as a playwright, Yeats, then um, you are inevitably confused as to what style of language or what form of language you are going to write in. And um, it is a very healthy confusion to have. It's a very productive and I hope very creative confusion. Because uh, when I was a, um, a, a boy, um, for me, theatre was very much something that I read. I grew up without a theatre near me in Donegal. Um, and my earliest exposure in terms of Irish theatre was especially to sing. So I had um, an imaginary music in my, um, in my, in my mind when I attempted to uh, decipher his plays as a young fellow in my teens. And the more uh, when I got an opportunity to see Singh's plays and especially to hear them, then um, I recognised that possibly there was really no distinction in that particular type of theatre between poetry and prose. Um, what we had, what you have in Singh is an astonishingly, um, in the right word, an astonishingly contrived series of exchanges and that um, the mastery, um, the actor's mastery really depends on um, exposing um, her or himself to the very definite chant of rhythms in these texts. Now chant may make it seem as if they are without meaning. Of course they're not Singh's plays, they are extraordinarily specific in their intent and extraordinarily demanding in their range of references that you must communicate to get the full power of it. So I was very much aware that the language of theatre um, has to do an awful lot of jobs and it has to do it in a very specific, uh, sorry, in a very confined time and very confined space. But I learnt an immense amount from um, these, the, the, the few plays that Singh wrote. Uh, he's an enormous influence on me actually and um, the older I get, the more I recognise that he was very much a shaper of me as a writer, as much as Ibsen was. I mean, I've done an awful lot of work on Ibsen, um, but they were the, they're the two key figures in terms of understanding what is a theatre, and Singh is a crucial figure in my understanding of what language is up to in the theatre. Um, and it is so um, extraordinarily um, precise, his, his use of the English language, that I feel um, that the accuracy and the layered quality of it is poetic in the proper way. Um, it's not polite, it's not um, extraneous, it's not excessive. It is extremely accurate, as I say, and it is also political. Um, and I mean, he is a highly politicized writer, saying, um, and you know, language is no escape from the reality of, of the political realities of what he's dealing with in something like The Well of the Saints. Mm -hmm. And would you say then your experience as a, a playwright um, has shaped in many ways your versions of, of Greek tragedy? I think that it's inevitable that it has actually, um, you know, as you say, I've done four of them that have been staged now and I think it was 
um, in the last two, in the Oedipus and in um, the Helen, I have looked more back to, um, to, to sing in, in the Oedipus and to Yeats, inevitably, and especially to Yeats in the, um, in the Helen. Um, I, 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 I like putting little homages in there. And um, at the heart of one of Oedipus' speeches towards the end, he uses the phrase, I call to mind, which is from, uh, from Yeats's theatre. But there's also a reference to the, sh to the Glen and to the Shadow Glen, which is, of course, my saying. Uh, this is me doing me sing, actually. Um, but it's a homage to sing through, through Oedipus. So it's inevitable that that uh, comes um, uh, in it. Um, and yes, yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> well, why, why, Frank, do you think that Greek tragedy matters to the directors you've worked with and, and perhaps to, to audiences who shared their experiences of your work with you? Well, I have to admit that when I was first asked to do Electra, which was the, the beginning, um, uh, David Laveau asked me to do that. That would be 1996. And I had seen an Oedipus in 1972, um, Yeats's Oedipus in the Abbey. Uh, Michael Kakanias had directed it. Um, and strangely enough, a man who is an enormous bearing on my work, a director, Patrick Mason, was Kakanias' assistant. I had a gigantic impact on me. Um, and then I hadn't seen any for a very long time. And I had attempted to teach it as part of a drama course. I attempted to teach Oedipus and I couldn't do it. I absolutely couldn't. I don't know what had happened uh, in the intervening years, but the play had, had gone from me. It had lost me. Um, and whether that was because I was steeping myself so much into the um, 19th, early 20th century European tradition um, may have been the reason. But when David phoned me, um, I read Electra. I, I read it in one of those uh, god awful um, the translations that, you know, um, and I just thought, Jesus, I don't know how to do this. I haven't a clue what's going on here. But he mentioned the, the magic words Zoe Wanamaker, and who I loved. I had never met her, but I just thought, Jesus, she's a great actress. I have to meet this man. And we sat down, and he started to talk about the play, and bit by bit, it became clear that he had a very, very, very definite um, image of um, the world that Electra was going to inhabit. And he has a very, uh, he has got a very profound commitment to, um, to, to um, Croatia and Sarajevo um, and the war that was raging there at the time. And he had um, rooted his own feelings for the play in um, that political reality and certainly saw Electra as the, this astonishing survivor of a war, but deeply maimed. And then I began to recognize this is a play about suffering. It's a play about pain. Um, and uh, that was the, the way in. I also, of course, even though I hadn't worked with Zoe, I knew her voice enormously well. And that to me is, is a great liberation because when I did um, Three Sisters in 19, um, God, when was it, 1990? 20 years ago for the Cusacks, the three, uh, Saraha, Sinead and Neve. And I knew two of them well. I knew Sinead and I knew um, Saraha. I worked with them and I knew Neve. So I actually wrote the version for their three voices. Mm -hmm. And it makes life, um, you know, a lot easier when you do have that. And I knew Zoe's voice. So I knew from the word go, she was going to be speaking these lines. And I, I felt that um, I could go to extraordinary extremes in the language there, and she would go there. She would go with me um, and would not shy away from it. 
And also I knew that um, Zoe really does love writers. She gets on well with them um, and she would trust me. Uh, and that really was um, an immense help in overcoming my genuine terror about going near a Greek play. Um, I, I sat there with the literal and the literal on that occasion was two um, Victorian translations of two early 20th century translations that the Donmar had bought the rights for. I'd, I'd never done anything up before. I always did a, a literal translation. And I just looked at it and, and I just felt, well, what am I going to do? And what I did was start. And um, Sophocles helps you enormously. He really does because he gives you that magnificent opening scene between um, the, the old the servant and Orestes which is a tremendous piece of, um, of setting the scene um, and giving you everything you need to know about um, these characters. But of course, for me as, as a novice, um, the help was that I hadn't to go straight into Electra, that something was happening before she arrived and that they were characterizing her. And there's this terrible cry that comes from her. And as long as you can hear that, as long as when Orestes is, is that her crying? And it's wonderful moments, but for me as a writer, it was a wonderful moment because that was the first sound of Electra that I heard and that guided me from then on. I just sit to the voice, the, the, the voice crying, you know, you've got to come now and talk. And she arrived then, she started to come. Um, and I hadn't time to panic anymore because there was such urgency in what she wanted to say. Uh, I, had, I hadn't the luxury of panicking. I had to get this down. Um, and. Uh, that's, that's really where it was. But I went there, as I say, just not going to do it. And I decided to do it mm. for whatever reason. And I'm very glad I did do it. Very, very glad. It was a great experience working on it. Um, and, you know, the, I've learned so much from, from that as well, actually. Um, it's very interesting because um, the Irish uh, versions of Greek plays um, seem to be so prolific uh, in, in, in number and also what's striking about them is is they're generally considered and I believe that I share that as preeminent in quality um, and would you say that working I mean from what you've just said is the idea of working on the Greek material was 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 not um, a, 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 a sort of enticing one um, is working with the Greek material easy I mean would you say that perhaps there are affinities between the Irish and the Greek experiences in some way, um, or perhaps it is, or has it always remained for you, mm. the greatest challenge, perhaps because of Yeats, because of mm. others who've been there yeah. before you? Well, I, I don't find them easy, to be honest with you. I really find them incredibly difficult, but that's part of the attraction. Uh, I mean, I love hard things. You know, my friend Pauline McGlynn, who plays Mrs. Doyle, and. Um, and uh, who's this gorgeous woman actually. And I've worked with Pauline since she was about 19. We worked in publishing for a while together and she was a kid and I've directed her and she's played in my plays. And she came over to me and we did a lecture on Dublin and said, does it always have to be wild hearts? <laughs> <laughs> and to my reply I was, yes, it does. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I like what Yeats calls the fascination of what is difficult um, because um, the, the, the more you work on a play, the more you, you try to get through to it. Then, of course, eventually it becomes clear that it is actually quite simple. But you have to earn the right to simplicity. You absolutely have to go through terrible difficulties in, um, in, the, in the composition of the play itself. Um, but that's just the way it is, actually. Um, about the Irish and the Greeks, I feel that in the history of the 20th century, 
probably the closest thing that, um, and has to the 20th century, the closest thing that we have in English to um, the density and immediacy and subversiveness of, of Greek writing is Writers to the Sea, sings playing back to him again. And that is always there, it's always been there as a, uh, I don't know what the right word for it, it's always been there as a beacon, a beacon of darkness maybe, but it's a beacon of something in, in my writing. You mentioned Baglady, and again, I have no doubts that um, the, the terror of Baglady is rooted somewhere in my reading of, uh, of Writers to the Sea. But it's, um, it's just the, the, the hard fact that if Singh could do it, and if he could throw down the gauntlets to us um, to say, I have done, I have written this play, then we have to take it up in some form or other. And maybe I did it in, on Baglady, but I also believe that now looking back on it, I think I've been doing that with the rest of the, the, um, the well, certainly with Oedipus and with um, Electra and, and Hecuba. Helen's another story, um, but I really do feel that I, I have been guided towards those play by, plays by that play in my own tradition. Uh, I have to say, with due respects to the, to the other versions that other writers, Irish writers have done, they wouldn't have made me wanted to try it myself. Um, they just wouldn't have, because I feel that um, they're, you know, um, they didn't give me the kind of kick and access that the raw literal gave me. Um, that was far more, um, you know, those strange <laughs> mumblings and meanings came far more powerfully through to me by reason of their roughness and by reason of their rawness. Um, I was getting far closer to the pain of the play and to the secrets of the play and to the sorrow and suffering of it. Um, so uh, it's a terrible arrogant thing to say, but I mean it actually. I, I, I wanted to get into the bone and marrow and muscle and heart of these plays. And the way to do that was through the literals. Um, and I had to use, you know, I had to fight my way into it, really. Could you, could you just talk us perhaps through the translational mm. uh, process that you, you go through, uh, particularly because mm. as far as I know, I don't think you have any Greek at all. I have no Greek. I, I studied Latin when I was a young fellow. Um, well, what I've done recently is there's a friend of mine called Fenula Murphy, who is a very good Irish actress. She played uh, Chrysothemis in the Electra that uh, I did in, in Ireland. Um, she went back to Trinity to study classics and um, came out with a superb degree. And she does my literal translations. She, uh, she, you know, has played the lecture in the Greek. Um, just to have somebody who has those two skills doing your literal is extraordinary. Um, and what is even better about her, she has no pretensions to being a writer. I come along and try to, um, to, to make it speakable. That's the first thing. And then the, the rewrite will be to, to put shapes in it and to see where the secrets are, see what the codes are. Um, and then the third one is the despair one, where I haven't been able to do it. And the fourth one is where I talk myself back into doing it again. So by the first rewrite, I am uh, a fair distance away from what Fenula did. But I absolutely acknowledge that I wouldn't be where I am without that, um, without that slog work that she starts off doing. And then I have to come and slog at as well. It's a very patient process. Um, which makes it sound as if it takes a long time to do it. Um, and it's fair to say that uh, the Oedipus that I commissioned, I commissioned it in 19, um, 
when it would be 1991, and I eventually did it in 2008. So that was 17 years in the waiting. But it's not normally that long. It's not normally that long. But it is. It is. It's. It's a. It's a patient process that you have, um, and um, you know, it, it, it's one where you are pitting yourself against um, a gigantic um, text, and you're seeing how you're going to come out of it. And how much? How many changes? happen uh, during the rehearsal process? Very few. I go through, I work very closely with the director before the rehearsal process. I mean, we've got a meeting next week for Antigone with Jonathan, um, and that'll be, you know, the first stage. And if I respect the director, I listen extremely closely to what the director says. Um, and good directors inevitably have great ears, really great ears, and they I mean, in Oedipus, he spotted about six things that rang false. Every one of them, absolutely right. But I, 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 you know, I have immense time. I need to have a really good scholar at my side. I don't bother them when I'm working on it, um, because Fanula gives me an awful lot of um, footnote material and the rest of it. But sometimes the footnotes are good for you. You have to get in there and solve the, the crux and the, the complications, start to unravel them and see what happens with it. So, uh, you know, I, I, I very happily acknowledge her as a, a major influence on, on the text, and I kind of make sure that she's given full credit. You, you've spoken before about, about the links between Bag Lady, the, the play I mentioned at the beginning, um, and your version of Sophocles Electra. Um, <coughs> you said how after working on Bag Lady, it was so glaringly obvious to you that Electra was mm. a, a, an abused woman. Um, has this happened with any of your other plays? I, I mean, I think I don't necessarily um, mean um, a, a, a play that's entirely your own, uh, but perhaps with <coughs> other working with other playwrights like Ibsen, for mm. example. I mean, you've translated, as you said, almost well, in fact, the, the, all all of Ibsen now. Um, has Ibsen shaped your Sophocles, or perhaps vice versa? Um, I. Don't think so, actually. Um, I really don't. What I find with the Greek plays, um, more than probably any of the other versions, uh, they're, they, they come from somewhere very deep inside me. Um, I have no doubt that it was my mother who guided me through Hecuba, and I have no doubt it was my father who was beside me through Oedipus. Um, and they died within 10 months of each other um, in 96 and 97. My father actually died while we were um, previewing Electra. As you can imagine, it wasn't easy. Uh, and then Zoe's um, father died just before it, and then her mother died. So it was a, uh, you know, we, we kind of had to help each other get through it. And I think the play helped us enormously to get through it. But it was it was um, raw red, um, and ever since my mother's died, I think I've spent a long time lamenting her. And Hecuba um, was like another homage to my mother. Actually, um, my mother was a very tough, very loving, very funny Donegal woman, but she came from a culture that put enormous value on courage and on a quite ruthless form of courage. Um, you know, when we were kids, she was the disciplinarian and the rest of it. So when I did Hecuba, um, I know that I was tackling 
possibly a side to my mother's character that I could never have done in a more obviously autobiographical piece. But all I'll say is that I never ever believed Hecuba is a play of two, a, a two-part play. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That there's two plays happening here um, by reason of the change Hecuba uh, that comes over it and the change comes over the play. To me, it is as realistic as it comes that this woman should have these astonishing diversions within her um, and these divisions within her. I had no problem with that. I always saw Hecuba as a coherent play. Now it's Euripides and from the little I know about Euripides, my, my extensive knowledge of two <laughs> plays, all I will say about him is what I find thrilling is that in a lesser playwright there could be four or five plays here. He makes it one and he takes you on such spins and turns um, and believable shocks to the system that he is utterly unique. There is nobody but nobody that I've ever come across in the European tradition that does that in the space of time and in the sense of location and with the characterization that he does. Even Shakespeare at his greatest, Lear, where there's three plays going on, can't manage that level of narrative, that level of contradictory and complementary narrative that Euripides does in Hecuba and especially in Helen. Um, but I, I know that, um, I, I know my mother's heart is beaten through the story of Hecuba, uh, and it was me having to deal with what I think is, um, a, you know, a reality about her. Um, similarly, in Oedipus, I really do believe that that is um, a play about fathers and sons. It's a deeply masculine play, um, terribly male play. And um, I had never really written anything where I had lamented my father. Um, but as I was coming towards the end of Oedipus, I started to see him extremely strongly around me. And um, I suddenly um, recognised this, this, this play is a cry of pain for my father dead. And I've delayed it for about 10 years. And I, there was a reason for not doing the version when I commissioned the literal. I obviously was at some level waiting for um, this to happen. So um, the Greek plays have enormous personal resonance for me and enormous personal impact for me that they put me up against a wall, they really do. Um, and if I opened my throat and screamed, that's really what I am trying to translate as much as anything else, my own loss, my own sense of um, sorrow and pain um, and I can do it because they give me these magnificent stories, they give me these magnificent characters, that's only I can do it because of them. So they have come as, uh, they've come to me at the time that I could face them and, uh, but I, uh, and, and they have enormous personal impact for me and maybe that was why I couldn't teach them. Maybe I needed to have that um, experience from within myself before I could turn to them to help me. And they do help me. They have helped me enormously. And I wouldn't say that about any of the other plays that I've done. I've, I have to love the plays that I'm working on. I have to have an obsession with them. I have to get them out of my system. Um, and uh, once that's done, then it's done. But an awful lot of them, including Ibsen, are for, um, not, not technical, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to be a better writer. I'm trying to learn more about my craft. I'm trying to, to hear and see more about what Chekhov and Ibsen and Strindberg are doing. And how do they how do they make it 
how do they how do they make their plays work, um, and um, and then I'll absorb that into my own writing in some way. Um, I don't know how, but it'll come through, and maybe a couple of years after I've done it, I'll see how it works. The Greeks, I think, um, quite shockingly, have been um, vehicles for for my own uh, experience, for, for my own sorrow, and I think that you know that's what makes them the plays that they are. Because everybody, I think, in some level sees themselves in them. And as, you know, there's so many selves, there's so many versions of what you can do with them. Do you, you seemed, uh, in the Helen at least, very comfortable in a tragic comic mode. Um, you've, you've been speaking about how, how, how the tragic um, is, is very important to you. I mean, do you, do you find Greek tragedy, Helen accepting, yeah. um, relentlessly tragic about Not the scream no no, okay. no 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 uh, Helen I loved because it's such a piece of cheek you know I mean I love the fact she didn't go to Troy I love that that just gets me you know um that is just so bloody clever um <laughs> that's good um uh, but I, I also find that I remember Zoe saying to me um <laughs> before the first preview <laughs> or I said to her not many laughs in this one, are there? <laughs> she said, there's three. <laughs> I said, get them. <laughs> she got two. <laughs> Not bad. Um, and they are genuine pieces of irony, actually, which you know, she's been Sally Wanamaker, she's got the two. Um, and um, then in the, in, in, in the um, Hecuba, I think there was this extraordinary moment that Claire got where suddenly when she sees Polly, um, the son, Polly Doris. Doris and, um, yeah, Polly Nestor is the king, so my Polly's not Polly. Yeah, Polly Doris, she sees him and Claire at this moment where she just started to laugh. And it's like the blackest of laughter. Where it's just now I'm, now I, I, I the world is insane. Um, um, and, um, you know, it's not knockabout comedy by any means, but, but it is that deep blackness in it. Oedipus, I think, the, the stranger from Corinth coming with the news, I actually think this is quite a funny scene. This guy on the mic looking to get in there. And, I mean, again, blackly funny, not realising what the hell he's just going to say. But I, I found him quite an amusing character, actually. Um, and... Um, you know, I, I feel that that's there in, in, in the writing. Maybe it's wishful thinking on my part that I want to have it there. And I know that Jonathan Kent, who directed it, was so well, fiercely resistant. Any attempt of Malcolm, uh, sorry, he's a wonderful comic actor, to, you know, to give a release at the play at that point, that he just felt it was not, once you get, if you get, let them out here, you're never going to get them back in. I don't agree with that, actually, because I think that Sophocles so knows what he's, knows what he's doing so well that he's going to bring them back in again, by reason of the gigantic uh, physical shock of, of, of what Edith was going to do to himself. But, um, you know, prior to Helen, it wouldn't be something that I would have thought of. But Helen, I did think, was a truly um, great piece of juggling, great piece of um, um, not knowing where you stand and, and just deliberately taking you into areas that you couldn't possibly have imagined you could, this play would take you into. 
He does the same with Hecuba, of course. He does, Euripides. I mean, he, there you are. You're, you're good to see a play called Hecuba. You want a good cry. She's a mother of Troy. She's all our mothers. She's so wonderful. When we're Greek and we're so good, we love our enemies. Look at the way we can compassionate with them. And then he makes her into this absolute, arrogant, violent creature that, you know, you, you're... What have you just done to me? He, he, he does lull you into um, going with him, and he takes you into very strange places. Uh, and I think that's similar to the case in Helen, um, when the, when, um, the, the Theoclemes um, arrives, the whole place starts to rewrite itself very radically. Um, and you can see what he's been setting up in the earlier part of the play, where um, Helen is such um, a tremendously sexy, um, knowledgeable, clever woman with this tremendous sense of grief about her as to what you know, she's been responsible for. She asks, you know, asks for mercy, asks the gods for mercy. Um, but uh, I, I feel that um, they know how to use humour when it suits them and we shouldn't back away from it. We should risk it and see what happens. But as I say, I mean, like, remember, I mean, I'm talking about poor place I've worked on. Do you have a, um, a favourite Greek tragedian, um, or even a, a, you could say a favourite Greek tragedy? Hecuba, yeah. Hecuba I did off my own bat. I just went um, and, I mean, I was asked to do the Electra and I was asked to do the Oedipus, um, but the two Euripides I did off my own bat, actually, both Helen and Hecuba. Hecuba was a play that was possessed me. I think it has to do with the mother. It has something to do with that. Um, and uh, I, I stand in awe at Hecuba. I, I think it's just um, such an astonishing piece of disciplined writing um, and a discipline that is so dramatic and that it is so liberating and it is so broad, so wide, um, that's uh, so unflinching in what it says. It's an astonishingly courageous play. Um, and I, I love the character of Hecuba so much. And do, do you think that takes you back to Riders to the Sea again, because many people have seen Moira, or oh, Hecuba behind Moira. Well, Moira doesn't have to go through the transformation no, no. that uh, Hecuba does. Um, and um, Moira is, uh, I mean, it would be possible that, you know, you could see Moira as half of what Hecuba goes through. Um, if Hecuba were resigned, that would be the case, but my God, is she not resigned? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, she is, um, she is to me um, as complex and as scarifying and attractive a character as Oedipus is. Um, because just as he has no pity for himself, when you watch her lose pity, um, it is a harrowing illumination of the human heart now turned so hard that um, it's almost as if the blood has become iron and the mind has, in a dreadful way, ceased to have feel any compassion anymore. Um, it's a loving death that she sentenced herself to, and it's only the bravest imagination that could have written that. And my beloved Euripides is that brave. You, you haven't yet worked on Aeschylus. I, I think you probably know that Gilbert Murray um, uh, told Yeats, uh, 
around about 1907 that Yeats really shouldn't touch Oedipus uh, because Oedipus wasn't Irish at all, but he should instead look at, for example, he said the Persians or the Prometheus or the Antigone. <laughs> um, uh, yes, I, was gonna, I mean, how, how would you respond to that? same county as Shakespeare, but there you go. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I hadn't read the Persians until you were mentioning it, uh, and then I went and I read them, and I can see where he's coming from. I can actually see where he's coming from, actually. Um, but I find Aeschylus incredibly difficult. I mean, incredibly hard. And um, I, you know, my, my feeling about Aeschylus, Tony Harrison's done it. You know? um, that's grand. Tony's done it. I'm not going to do better than Tony Harrison, so I'm living it alone. Actually, I think. Um, I, I, I kind of, that, that was my reaction when I read Helen as well. You know, oh, no, no, it's too hard, it's too difficult, I'm not going to do it, um, this is mad. Um, and then, but it dawned me how I would try to do it, whether, I, you know, especially that opening speech. Um, I, I find the plethora of names in the Persians seriously off-putting, you know. Um, <laughs> it just gets in the way. I think there's great things in it. Like, I can see where it's come from the Raising of the Dead, Darius and the Ghost. And I can see uh, the, the mother, whose name I can't remember. Um, yeah, I can see how she would be um, a, a more a figure of some kind, actually, or one of those great women of Irish legend. Um, and I can see Xerxes coming back to his mother with his torn clothes, and she gives off to him this real Irish, actually. Um, <laughs> but I don't know how you would tackle it. And I'd love to say I've done an Aeschylus. I'd love to say it. But I don't know how to get around the problem of the names. Uh, could we just cut them? Could we? Yeah, that's my usual suggestion is I just cut it. Um, anyway, I, I, I can see where Gilbert Moore is coming from. Now, isn't it extraordinary, though, that he says to the real revealing thing there is there's nothing Irish about Oedipus, which is extraordinary um, cultural comment. Um, where, I mean, sorry, you know, is he from Leeds then, you know? Um, well, if, if it was Yorkshire, would it be a help, you know? Um, it's just something that you have to be aware of, and it's something that I'm really aware of. It's always a shock to me that English theatres want to work with me. Um, certainly because Irish theatres, can you imagine, I can't imagine going to an Irish theatre to say, well, there's this little known Greek play called Hecuba, it's a bit of a woman. I would get five minutes there. I went to see Michael Grandich at the um, Donmar. I'd never met this man. I read an article that he'd written for the um, Guardian on political theatre, I phoned my agent and I said, can I meet him? Because I want to talk to him about something. I went in, I met Michael, he was rehearsing on the old Vic. At 10 minutes, I told him the plot of Hecuba, he said, all right, go and do it. And, and it was great. You know, he knew that I really, something was happening and I really wanted to do it. Turned out Jonathan wanted to do it as well, so it all happened. Um, but it's, uh, there's another kind of Englishness which doesn't really want uh, the Irish to be working on it. They don't want that kind of daring, if you want, or that. But, um, you know, th th that is not on. That's not what we want from Greek tragedy. Okay, then, um, if that's not what you want from Greek tragedy, you clearly want something more contained and more polite. I do not find anything contained or polite about Greek tragedy whatsoever. I find it um, the roughest form of experience um, that you can put on a stage, but that's all the more reason for doing it, um, all the more reason for daring to do it. I think that's, um, 
Yeah, Ireland gives you some access to that kind of world, but it doesn't make it any easier to write. It just doesn't. You Would you um, die for, I think that was your term, would you die for a, 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 an opportunity to work and adapt Aristophanes? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, no. Uh, well, oh, I think he's really boring, you know? I mean, I have to say it. I've, I've sat through... Oh, God, if I sat through productions of Little Strata where I wanted to commit suicide, actually. <laughs> um, and it's not funny. But the ones that I've seen, are, they're not funny. And, um, and I, I mean, please don't ever ask me to, to see the, the wasps. I mean, just, I, I can't take it, actually. Um, you know, I don't find jokes about the baker that died three and a half thousand years ago. They're not, they don't work, you know? And I don't know how you make it work. I mean, I don't know how you do, I, the simple reason is I don't, I really don't know how you would do Aristophanes. And the other reason is I don't really want to learn. Um, whereas with Euripides and Sophocles, I do. I do want to learn how to do it. As I say, I mean, the plays have to really make an impact on me and, you know, in the literals or in all the translations that I've read for me to be tuning into them. Um, and Aristophanes does not do that for me. Michael Billington recently uh, said that the problem in, in the British theatre at the moment, uh, the London stage, yeah. I think he said, was that comedy was was marginalised. And he said that that was a trend that was happening over 10, 15 years. Right. Tragedy was dominating. And yeah. he said that we are no longer in contact with our comic tradition. Yeah. Um, from an Irish perspective, how would you see that as being a particularly English observation? Um, well, I think comedy has been the bane of the Irish theatre, particularly recently, where every, uh, all the audiences want is a way out. They want a big laugh, and that's all they want. Um, and that gets tiring as well, it gets tiresome. Um, but I, I don't agree with Billington on that, that comedy has been marginalised, actually. I mean, how many productions of Twelfth Night have there been? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a monumental play, and, and every director, I'm sure, wants to stake their claim by um, their, their reading of it and their staging of it. Um, you know, and, and Jez Butterworth has written wonderful Jerusalem, um, which is surely a marvellous piece of anarchic celebration. Um, I, I don't know what he's where he's coming from with that, actually. Um, I think he's also saying we never see restoration comedy, for example. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, I think that you can kiss that goodbye because I don't think actors can do it anymore. I think that's the, the key there, actually. I really don't think that they can cope with the language of restoration. Um, it's very, very difficult, very difficult. I mean, there was a disastrous production of the recruiting officer on the Abbey where it was absolutely clear that it was, you know, they didn't have a clue. They did not have a clue how to deal with that. And, and Farquhar is far more accessible and speakable than, than somebody like Congreve or Witcherly. Um, but I, I do firmly believe that's the, the last way of the world. Oh God, that's a fair few years ago. It was that was um, Geraldine McEwen was on playing Lady Witchford and Fiona Shaw, and I think it was Alex Jennings. I'm not sure, or was it Roger Allen? Um, and you know, there, Geraldine just stood out as somebody who has the training yeah. and the the, the new state to, to tackle this um, this way of communicating. Um, but you know, so it's the pace of the verbal. I think it is. The dexterity is gone. I really do think that, um, and um, it's not going to come back. Those plays, I think, are, are tragically gone. Um, 
You know, we don't know how to do them. Mind you, we've said that before, and then along came uh, Bill Gaskell in the 50s and 60s, and well, he had Maggie Smith and John Neville, so, you know, suddenly there were people there who had it. Um, and so who knows, who knows? Um, but I certainly don't agree that the comic spirit's marginalised on the, um, the London stage. Um, you know, that, that spirit of that, that particular energy, of course that particular energy is, is channeled into the musical as well. Um, and Bullington's not a great man for the musicals, so maybe he's just not looking in the right place. Um, we've, we've spoken a lot about um, your work with Greek tragedy, but of course there you have other interests, wider interests in the classics. Mm. As, as you say, you, you learnt Latin at school. Mm. Um, and a play that I don't think many people know about, your play mm. Carthaginians, mm. Uh, is, is a very interesting and a mm. very daring play in many ways. Um, how, how much of the Aeneid, for example? Strangely enough, there's a fair bit in it. I did a virtual um, for my leaving cert, which is like your A-levels. And um, I read the whole of I read the whole of book one in Latin, and I read the rest of it in translation. And um, there are certain uh, quotes from from it planted in there, well disguised. But um, two things attracted me to uh, the, the the world of that. One is that um, I discovered Carthage. I'm t I mean I think this is true. Carthage means new city. I think it is right. Um, I don't know, but anyway, in my play it means new city anyway. And um, I also heard that the Irish word for city, Cahar, is derived from Carthage. Again, I don't know, but it suited my purposes. Um, the play is set in Derry, in the graveyard in Derry, and the refrain of Carthage must be destroyed is um, closely allied to the ruined city of Derry, after Bloody Sunday especially. Um, that the ruined psychological state of the people there and the trauma of that day. Um, and in the course of the play, they come to learn that this Carthage, this new city, Derry, has not been destroyed. And that word, that line is spoken by a character called Dido. Right? And when I was a kid, the name Dido was for um, a boy's name. Uh, and it is a, a gay man, a young gay man, who is the spirit of the new city and who has not been destroyed by Derry. Um, but uh, he certainly identifies with the Carthaginian queen. Um, he called, you know, Dido Queen of Carthage, he is Dido Queen of Derry. Um, well, this particular Dido, this Queen of Derry, also is not destroyed. He doesn't commit suicide, you know. He doesn't throw himself in the pyre, but he also doesn't find his Aeneas. Um, he has to leave Derry, he has to leave Carthage to travel the world and find another new city, to find another Rome. So the Virgil is extremely important in that I'm trying to rewrite a lot of what he does. Um, and that's um, the, my Dido, being male, female, is also an ace. And that in the spirit of the two of them uh, is inside him. And he, as I say, he leaves at the end to go and find his new... Um, his new um, world. When I was a kid, um, I never ever have been able to forget that astonishing line. I know it's a cliche, but it's a wonderful, wonderful, untranslatable line from um, uh, from the Aeneid. It's Sunt Lacrimae Rerum et Mentum Mortalia Tangent. And I was going to actually maybe use that as a subtext for Carthaginians, and I thought, no, 
I can't do that because it's not accurate. It's not what the play is really about. But I've never been able to um, forget that line. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's always troubled me, you know, that particular thing. But yes, uh, Virgil and the story of the Aeneid are definitely, uh, particularly the story of, of Dido, are there at some level in the writing of Carthaginians, which probably doesn't mean New City, but anyway, there you go. So. Okay, now I, I'm aware that the time is uh, running out. Um, before we thank Frank very much for it, you know, truly stunning um, uh, account of his uh, meeting with Greek tragedy. Uh, I want to invite everyone to a drink, and it is a drink, a truly Irish drink, uh, in the outreach room. So not in the common room, but just no tea, no tea available for us. I'm uh, so uh, so please, <laughs> please come and join us for an early drink. Uh, we try and, to get English breakfast, but nah. And, and please, can you join me in thanking Frank very, very much? Thank you all. <laughs>